Welcome to One in Five, the Melbourne Disability Institute podcast, bringing you the latest in disability research from the University of Melbourne. I'm Tessa DeVries. In this series, we'll be looking at how research can tackle some of the biggest issues facing people with disability and their families. Join us as we talk to a range of people about new research findings, possible solutions and policy ideas. Before we start, we just want to let you know that this episode features Alison Milner, who died in a tragic accident not long after we recorded this interview. With the permission of her family, we are sharing her research here and continuing her legacy. While both the supply and demand of employment in Australia have generally improved over the last 20 years, when it comes to employment for people with disability, we are not doing so well. In fact, Australia has one of the lowest employment rates for people with disability in the OECD. The United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disability, of which Australia is a signatory, recognises that people with disability have a right to work on an equal basis with others. Beyond the fundamental human rights argument for increasing employment of people with disability, there is an economic argument to be made also. Increasing employment for people with disability to OECD average levels would add $11.9 billion to GDP in Australia by 2030. That is a modest and seemingly achievable target of a 0.8% increase in employment. In this two-part episode, we will explore what is causing such poor employment rates for people with disability and look at key initiatives to improve the quality and availability of work. I'm looking for work constantly um, and there's a huge gap in my resume from all the times throughout the duration of when I was sick so um, it gets me a bit anxious walking into like a job interview. We'll look at the figures. So Australia's employment levels for people with disability are systematically below those people without disability. And we'll unpick some of the contributing factors revealed by research. A third of people said that they experienced discrimination applying for a job going to a job interview and at the workplace. We'll look at what works to better engage and sustain employment for people with disability. Really best practices do have certain features. And one of those features is that this would be a more formal system. And explore projects designed to address low levels of disability employment. So what we're doing is we're building a model to support the Victorian public sector to onboard train and provide long-term careers for people with intellectual disability. But stay with us now as we're joined by Associate Professor Alison Milner. I'm Deputy Director of the Disability and Health Unit. For a rundown on how disability and employment interact. Well, I think all, all people with a disability face issues at different stages of the life, so it depends a lot on the life stage. We know that people with intellectual disabilities have particular problems, as do those people with psychosocial disabilities. And that's shown through some of the statistics around the DES system or the Disability Employment Services system. These people tend to sort of churn through the system, which means they tend to be placed in a job, then drop out of that job, probably because the job's not suited to them. Then they go back into the system to be placed again and again. So this is the group that tends to be unemployed again and again and again. Employment rates for people with a disability are only about 47%, compared to 80% for people without a disability. And when thinking about those low employment rates, keep in mind that people are considered employed if they work for a minimum of one hour per week. Our work generally tends to focus on the conditions around a person with a disability. So operating from more of the social model of disability, which would argue that it's sort of the conditions around somebody's ability to interact with a workplace that determines whether they are able to stay at work and are well enough to work. 
So within that, we think about things like the psychosocial characteristics of a job. So for example, levels of control you might have over when and how and who you work with, um, whether you're able to have flexibility about when you go into work and when you stay at home to work, for example. Another big one is if you're having trouble in housing, that will then impact the ability to which you're able to get to a job and be able to get to a job, say, on time or it being, for example, a long way away from where you're living. So we know these two things are quite closely interrelated, precarious work and precarious housing. But on top of that, um, how demanding the job is, both in terms of physical demands but psychological demands. And one big stressor we found is job insecurity. So feeling that, you know, you may not have a job tomorrow is not very good for your health, is not very good for staying in a job either. So a program can be effective for placing someone in employment, but really the rubber hits the road is whether it's good for health, because work that's good for health will ultimately be good for economic productivity, social productivity and someone's overall well-being. So really we need to be considering these two things in tandem. We'll explore these ideas further shortly when we look a bit deeper at some of the research around disability employment services. But first, we'll talk to Alex. My name's Alex Wallace. I was diagnosed with bipolar back in 2005. To get an idea about what it's like trying to find work with a psychosocial disability. Yeah, so basically I was working as a cake maker in like an industrial kitchen. Um, and I was living like in the fast lane, burning candles at both ends. And I knew nothing about mental illness, nothing at all. Um, and then 2005, December, I had a massive breakdown, a massive psychotic break, elevated psychosis, mania, like delusional thinking, all that sort of thing. Yeah, it led to hospital admissions, in and out of hospitals, um, really, really extreme stuff, like like crazy stuff. You know, I was very lucky to survive and be here, like talking about it today. I think the main way I sort of got better was just by surrendering to the services and people who were professionals and just letting everything go and just saying, I'm in your hands, tell me what to do. But um, it was a lengthy recovery, so it took a while until I started feeling comfortable going back into the workforce. You know, I, or I could think about going back to work. So yeah, so I'm, I'm looking for work constantly. Um, I've had a lot of stop-start jobs. I have no problem with my work ethic, like I can work quite hard and and quite well, I think, but there's some days where I'm not as on the ball, on the money. Some days I'm feeling very lethargic, very anxious. Even though I feel like I've recovered a lot, there's, I'm still crippled by some things on certain days. And I don't think that's really ever going to go away. I used to be a bar manager um, in the UK when I was in my 20s, but, um, but that was before I got sick. Now that I'm sick, the anxiety is too much to deal with being out they're serving like lots of people dealing with that sort of stuff I just I, I can't do that anymore so along with the illness there's been restrictions that have come with that um, as far as going back into certain roles in the workforce even ones I've done before when I was younger that's probably one of the most notable findings coming out of the studies that there's this real broad range of barriers to employment for people with disability, that it's not just associated with with getting them sort of job ready, but um, then I think there's maybe a broader discussion needed around, you know, recognising those barriers and then also supporting people. I'm Stephanie Dumov and I'm a project manager on a number of projects looking at disability and employment at the Unit for Disability and Health uh, at the University of Melbourne. One of those projects is the Improving Disability Employment Study, otherwise known as IDES. IDES is a research project looking at the ways in which people interact with disability employment service providers, known often simply as DES. 
Des providers are organisations that help job seekers with disability find a job and also provide whatever support that person needs to keep their job. The EYES project is the first of its kind to examine the experience of people looking for work by conducting surveys and interviews across a range of Des providers. We talked to Steph and her colleague Alex. Hello, my name's Alex Devine. About the project. So IDS was really born, I guess, out of the understanding and some of the statistics around the unemployment rate for people with disability. So we know that that's about twice the rate of that for people without disability. And so we know that increasing those rates is really important, but we also know that improving the quality of work for people with disability um, is, is equally as important. The aim of the study was to recruit people with all types of disability. We found that the majority of people had a psychosocial or a psychological disability, so that was uh, almost 45% of people in the study. And then we also had people participating that had uh, physical disability, uh, sensory disabilities, and and also almost 15% of people had a cognitive impairment or an intellectual disability as well. The IDS project interviewed around 350 people with disabilities. That's Alex now to better understand their socioeconomic conditions and how that relates to their engagement with employment services. Alex's work within the project focuses on the experiences of people with a psychosocial disability. So I guess in my research that refers to a disability associated with someone's lived experience of mental illness, not all people who experience mental illness will experience a disability, but given that people with psychosocial disability in many contexts within Australia and the world, are more likely to experience socioeconomic inequities, more likely to experience discrimination and have um, a lot of unmet need for both mental health services but general services in terms of housing can mean that that mental illness can become a disabling condition. Psychosocial disability produces some of the highest rates of disengagement from the labour market, with unemployment rates of 19% compared to 5% for the general population. But the reasons for such high unemployment levels are complex. So we know, for example, from our findings, some of the major barriers to employment that people with psychosocial disability are reporting are actually issues around homelessness or insecure housing or poverty or the fact that they're not able to address their both their mental health needs and their, their general health needs, which makes looking for work and maintaining work much harder And these are not necessarily um, areas where disability employment services are well-resourced to support people. DES providers often have very high caseloads. There might, even if they are aware of a housing support community organisation, that community organisation might then not have enough resources to support people with disabilities to find housing In a lot of places where we're speaking to people, such as in rural areas, there might just be a limited number of appropriate jobs that people feel that they're able to engage with, either in terms of their their other coexisting physical conditions or or the hours that's expected of them or or the environments that they're expected to work in. So it's this confluence of, of barriers at different levels that people with psychosocial disability are experiencing more those structural barriers to employment that the DES program are currently not able to address. So I guess the main finding is it's hard to see how the DES program can be really effective for people with psychosocial disability if we're not addressing those underlying barriers.
Hi, my name's Natalie. I've been engaged in lots of different disability employment agencies. Um, they've helped me like make a resume, like apply for jobs, get on seek. They helped me with attending a job interview, like accompanying me to the job interview, staying there through the interview with me. Because, yeah, sometimes I get in a really good place, so I feel like I can work, so I have worked and stuff. And then there's times where I'm not, so... And when I'm, when I'm going through periods of being quite unwell, um, I can't hold a job at all. With mental illness, it's like every day can be different. So a job, it's like consistent. You have to go there on time. You have to do your job. It doesn't matter what's going on with you. The job's not waiting for you. You have to go and do it and you always have to be good. And that's the thing with mental illness people. You're not always stable like a job. So... Yeah, with mental health, it can be hard. We did ask people about the kinds of things that would be helpful when thinking about their next job. And so one of the things that was coming out quite strongly was um, understanding from co-workers about their disability or their health condition. So over 50% of people said that that was important to them. We also uh, found that receiving a supportive approach to training would also be important for people with disability. Uh, and then um, other important things included, you know, having flexible work hours, for example. So 85% of people said that that was important to them. Um, and having the option to have duties modified too. So almost 70% of people said that that was important, which I guess lends itself to this concept of job quality and having more control over the kinds of things that you do at your job. So something that we're recognising is that this is particularly compounded for young people with disability, young people that are transitioning from school into employment. Young people with disability, you know, whether they're attending a mainstream school or a special school, generally face more limited opportunities around sort of developing work readiness skills than people or young people more generally. So... Um, you know, some of the things that are identified as, as helping young people into work are things like having access to volunteer experience, um, but also paid work and, and after school work, part time work. So there's some research looking at young people with intellectual disability. And so for those young people, if they don't, you know, they're not in a job by the age of 21, it's sort of much more difficult for them to be in open employment moving into adulthood. So it's really important, particularly for young people with disability, to be developing some of those work-ready skills or those employment skills early on and certainly before the completion of high school. Other things that DES participants have valued in the past is that really one-on-one engagement where they've got good intake processes. So the DES provider takes time to understand the person's needs and their aspirations in terms of employment. And then they really work to um, match that individual with, a, with an appropriate employment consultant. That can be challenging for other DES providers to do. Um, not all, there are some amazing employment consultants out there that have a really good understanding of psychosocial disability. And they match that understanding of psychosocial disability with a good understanding of the local labour markets as well. So they've got good relationships with local employers that are willing and able to recruit people with psychosocial disability and provide supportive environments. Um, but we know 
often enough people might get referred into employment situations that don't meet their aspirations or their needs and when that does happen it can have a very negative impact on someone's mental health. You know I can have days where I'm so flat I can't function I can't make myself something to eat I can't do anything I can't leave the house I don't want to lie to an employer and say I'm reliable I'm good I'll always be here and then I don't because then I'll just see myself as a failure and it'll make me feel worse. I think the number one priority is not to relapse and end back in a psychiatric hospital. You know, that that's your main goal, I think, when you have a mental health condition. And when, when I get sick, I may be sounding sort of okay today, like, but when I get sick, I get so sick. I get so, so sick. I think protecting your mental health is vital and it's the number one rule. And anyone around you who cares about you should understand that. Um, and not push you into work that is unsuitable and that could stress you to the point that you will relapse and, yeah, get sick again because it, it sometimes it takes a long, long time to recover. You know, and some people don't even recover fully. So even before the introduction of the NDIS, and we see this in a lot of social policy programs within Australia, there is this move to marketisation. Um, so previously in the DES program, before the July 2018 reforms, all DES providers were sent or referred a market share from Centrelink. So if a Newstart um, recipient with disability went to Centrelink, Centrelink would refer them on to a DES provider. Why that still happens, Centrelink do still refer people. Um, income recipients or DES participants now have more choice and control in which service they go to and if they're not happy they can change. I guess some of our other work though has looked at whether people do change and we know that there's a lot of reasons why even if people are unhappy with the DES service that they're receiving they still experience a number of barriers to changing. It's too early on in the reforms to see if that changes, but we know sometimes um, people are not aware that they're, they're able to change, they don't have the information about what other providers are available. Um, enacting change can be difficult. Sometimes people don't want to offend their current DES provider, even if they know that it's not meeting their needs. And then other broader issues in terms of housing and poverty and health conditions where their engagement in DES, it's difficult for them to prioritise when they're trying to address so many other issues in their lives. That brings us to the end of part one of this episode. In part two, we will look at the other side of employment, the employers. How do we get employment right? What is the government's role in increasing disability employment rates? And why do we need to think about long-term as well as immediate solutions? In the meantime, you can visit our website at disability.unimelb.edu.au to find out more information about the research we talked about today and some useful resources. And you can join our mailing list. I'm Tessa DeVries. Thanks for listening to One in Five.